This is Michael J. Fox. Thanks for listening to this podcast. Learn more about the Michael J. Fox Foundation's work and how you can help speed a cure at michaeljfox.org. You're listening to audio from one of our third Thursday webinars on Parkinson's research. In these webinars, expert panelists and people with Parkinson's discuss aspects of the disease and the foundation's work to speed medical breakthroughs. Learn more about the third Thursday webinars at michaeljfox.org slash webinars. Thanks for listening. Thank you, everyone. Good afternoon. Thank you for joining us for today's third Thursday webinar. I'm Dr. Sonia Mather, family physician, a Parkinson's patient for the last 21 years, and co-chair of the Michael J. Fox Foundation Patient Council. I also have the pleasure of being your moderator today. As you know, unfortunately, there's no currently no cure for our disease, but there are a variety of tre- treatment options that our medical team can offer us, directed at managing our symptoms, minimizing side effects, and optimizing our quality of life, because really, until there is a cure, it's really all about quality of life. And the treatments that will give each of us the best life experience differ from individual to individual, much like many aspects of this disease. In conjunction with our medication, surgical options, including deep brain stimulation and focused ultrasound, can help manage Parkinson's symptoms for some. But these procedures are not for everyone. Our panelists will discuss today what these procedures are all about, who should consider treat these treatments and when, and what someone may expect after surgery. Let's meet our panelists. Uh, the first is my good friend, Richie Rothenberg, who's also a member of the Patient Council, actually one of the founding members, and he was diagnosed with Parkinson's disease at age 36 about 15 years ago. He had DBS surgery in 2010 and 2011, and he'll explain why there's two dates there, and we'll share his experience. Welcome, Richie. Thank you. Good morning, son. All right. Good afternoon. Good, <laughs> good morning where you are, I think. Next is Dr. Paul Fishman, who is a professor of neurology at the University of Maryland and chief of neurology service at Maryland VA Healthcare System. He led some of the first trials on focused ultrasound therapy in Parkinson's disease, so we're very lucky to have him here today. Hello, Dr. Fishman. Hello, and thank you for inviting me. Oh, absolutely. And finally, Dr. Juhi Shahid is director of the Deep Brain Stimulator Program at Baylor College of Medicine in Texas. He's also leading a new DBS registry to better understand how people can have better outcomes with this treatment. Hi, Dr. Shahid, welcome. Good afternoon. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. Richie, my friend, I'd like to start with you and your story because you've actually lived what we're talking about today. And, um, and I'm really interested to hear what you have to say. So could you share with us when you were diagnosed and what your journey has been like up until this time? Yes, um, I was diagnosed in 2004. And... My journey was very um, exciting. It was uh, very it progressed very rapidly. My disease and my tolerance of the levodopa increased, so I needed more and more. And I was very dyskinetic as a result of all the levodopa. And I was eligible for the surgery, so I. So I I decided to go ahead and have it after about, I guess it was about seven years of of this progression. Mm -hmm. And I had it in 2010 in the fall. And then I had it again in 2011 in in, um, the winter. And why was that? The story behind that is because um, I I was... um, one of the lucky few that got a, a, a death infection from the surgery, just just by just by the l- luck of the odds, the unluck of the odds. 
with um, with any surgery that you do. So they had to remove it completely. The good news was I was able to tolerate the length of the, of the surgery. So they were able to put everything in and program me when they when they redid it in February of 2011. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And how have things been since then? Well, things have been um, pretty amazing physically. Um, I still have Parkinson's. I still have symptoms of Parkinson's, non-motor symptoms, as well as some motor symptoms still. I still freeze mm-hmm. at times, but less so. I still take my medication, but a little less than I took when I was at my height before the surgery. Right. The surgery is really, really modified. It was really pretty much eliminated the dyskinesia. And it has, yeah. in combi- combination with levodopa treatment and programming assistance, it's um, it's been much smoother. The ons and offs have been much less severe, and it's been a lot. It, I mean, it's like, it was like a new lease on life for me, in terms of the right. profound impact I had in my life, my ability to work, my ability to live my life, have be with my family, get remarried, have two more kids, <laughs> and um, right. it's so it, it was really remarkable. But it, but I want to be a little cautiously optimistic. I can be realistically um, excited about the DBS procedure because the real reality is Parkinson's is a, still still here. It still affects my daily life, but I have a great tool on hand with the DBS to assist me. Yeah, I mean, I, I can vouch for that. I saw you before and after surgery, and there really was a remarkable difference in terms of your functioning, for sure. Yeah, you can't get away with using Parkinson's as an excuse for getting what you want when you don't look like you have Parkinson's. Sometimes people see me and think, he, he, he wouldn't have any idea of Parkinson's. So I, that, which is a nice thing, which also um, people still sympathize with you, I think, but it's definitely, you get to drop into the world less um, obtrusively. Right. Right. Yeah, things do change for sure. So we're going to discuss um, DBS and also focused ultrasound, what they are and how they work and so forth in a few minutes in more detail. But Dr. Fishman, um, could you tell me at what point in your practice do you tend to recommend that patients consider uh, moving forward in their treatment regimen to include a surgical treatment? Well, I think for both DBS and FUS, surgical treatment is pretty much the general treatment for any uh, condition, which is uh, you've tried a good faith effort to manage the patient medically, and uh, there are symptoms that you can't manage medically. You're either limited by side effects or the effectiveness of the medication. And in particular, uh, for both DBS and FUS, uh, the commonest group of patients are the patients who have a fluctuating response to medication. Uh, For Good candidates for DBS actually, sadly, are sometimes patients who respond well to levodopa but have a fluctuating response. 
that it, it doesn't last very long. Patients have fluctuate between the on period where the medications are working well and an off period where there are Parkinson's symptoms of stiffness, slowness, difficulty walking are occurring. And just like Richie mentioned, uh, with years of levodopa treatment during an on period, many Parkinson's patients will develop involuntary movements. And those involuntary movements sometimes are just, you know, mildly bothersome, but they can actually interfere with, with normal movement. So again, a fluctuating response to levodopa is probably the commonest reason that where people with Parkinson's will, will opt for surgical therapy. And the second group is that even though levodopa is a wonderful medication, the Parkinson's medications work well, there's a certain group of Parkinson's patients where the tremor just can't be controlled. And uh, that's the second group of patients who opt for surgical therapy, where in spite of best medical management, there's a tremor that interferes with day-to-day with -day life. So it's not a um, time thing in terms of it's not like within a certain number of years you should have considered surgical treatment. It's more on a case-by-case -case basis. Is that right? It does, but a lot of times these are time-dependent. Uh, in early phase of Parkinson's, the medications work well. Uh, and again, except for that comment about tremor, where sometimes relatively early in the disease, it's clear that the tremor is blowing through all the medications are tried. But for most patients mm -hmm. with Parkinson's, fluctuating response occurs in that so-called middle phase, you know, after several years. And the other part, sadly, is usually after a decade or more of Parkinson's, many Parkinson's patients, like Richie mentioned, developed uh non more non motor problems and the most really serious disabling non motor problems occurring late in the disease are problems with thinking and memory, you know, dementia and problems with balance, you know, frequent falling. And since neither of those are particularly improved by DBS, problems with thinking really uh, are at risk of worsening. That's why we talk about those patients in the middle phase uh, being the best surgical candidates. Right. So, Dr. Shade, um, Dr. Fishman just mentioned the cognitive issues um, that might determine whether someone should go for a surgical intervention. Are there are there some general criteria to consider when you when you have someone come in for DBS? Yeah, I think Dr. Fishman mentioned a lot of them. I mean, we like to, um, you know, we never sort of just see a patient in clinic and decide, okay, it's it's time for surgery. We usually try to go through a more detailed assessment of what the problems are with the way the medications are working and really trying to get a grasp of um, what types of symptoms are present and have a conversation about whether or not those are things that can actually get better. Um, one of the last things that we want to do is to sign people up for a difficult procedure that then um, doesn't really have a chance of helping them with the symptoms that are most bothersome to them. So typically, um, we will have patients come into our clinic um, off their medications for Parkinson's, and we'll assess the severity of their symptoms. We'll give them their usual dose of Parkinsonian medications and then reassess to see what kinds of things get better. And that really helps us guide our conversation with the patient about what we really think will improve or not. And so we're really kind of looking for, for those dynamics. And a lot of that um, conversation also includes the discussion of the 
timings of the medications, the dosing of the medications, whether or not they're having those fluctuations or the dyskinesias. And then we put all that information together combined with what we call a neuropsychological assessment to determine whether or not surgery is an appropriate option for our patients. So it's kind of hard to say that there are very specific criteria. Those are not really well-defined, but this is Mm -hmm. sort of the general sense of how we approach those patients and try to make the best decision about whether DBS can help them. So it seems like, I mean, you do have a little bit of a checklist that you're looking for in terms of testing, but it's a lot about patient expectations as well. So even if someone's a good candidate, if they have unreasonable expectations of what's going to happen after surgery, would that preclude them from having the surgery yeah. then? Yeah, I mean, I think that's that's part of the conversation that we will have. I think, you know, surgery, especially deep brain stimulation surgery, it's important to remember, and I think kind of Richie alluded to this as well, that it doesn't cure the Parkinson's. People still will experience some um, difficulties related to their Parkinson's. And so, um, you know, we certainly don't want to have um, an unreasonable expectation that a certain symptom will get better and then have a patient be disappointed afterwards. And so I wouldn't necessarily say that having, well, I guess maybe the way that I would put it is that we we just have very careful conversations with our patients about what it is that they should or shouldn't expect from the surgery in order for them to be very well prepared for what the ultimate outcome would be. Um, And so in situations like that where somebody maybe is expecting too much, you know, we would just have that conversation and and kind of refocus and and try to make it um, clearly understood what would or wouldn't get better before proceeding. As part of the overall assessment, I think, and but the the um, expectations, managing expectations, is key to every sort of treatment, everything that we do. But um, does it does it does it is it considered a component of the neuropsychological assessment, or is it just a, a part of the <clears throat> overall conversation you have with patients? Yeah, the the um, the neuropsychological assessment is. Um, primarily to assess the cognitive functioning, so the thinking skills, the memory skills, uh, the thought processing, those kinds of things, as well as kind of an um, overall assessment of kind of behavior and mood. Um, so it, it's more to kind of get a snapshot of, of what's going on there in order to both determine risk for surgery. So as Dr. Fishman mentioned, if people have significant cognitive decline, there is already at the time that they're thinking about DBS, there's risk of, of further decline and, and we don't want to expose those patients to further harm. Um, but there's also the aspect of this um, which gets into mood, uh, anxiety levels, things like that, that may influence how a patient copes with their uh, post-operative course. And so to a certain extent, yes, I would agree with you that that neuroscience psychological assessment does get at some of those issues, but we bring that information back to the patient in combination with a very clear discussion about that levodopa response to guide kind of what we think um, is likely to be better. Uh, The surgery really works best for the symptoms that get better the best with levodopa, with the exception of the tremor, as Dr. Fishman pointed out. And what what if someone has a history because of mood disorder? I mean, depression and anxiety are so common in Parkinson's disease. How does that factor in? I've heard, obviously, as you said, that it can get worse or, or have, make it more difficult to cope with the procedure. But does it play into your decision? 
<laughs> well, again, yeah. uh, I think the issue is to make sure that that's adequately treated. Uh, okay. Again, there, there's not a rush to surgery. Uh, and right. uh, we looked at this several years ago, and if patients have well-controlled anxiety uh, and depression by the time they get the surgery, uh, that usually doesn't inhibit their outcome. But again, once those things are, are identified, they need to be treated and, and controlled before the surgical procedure. Well, that makes sense, actually. Actually, Dr. Shedd, I'd like to start with you on this one. Um, most people heard about DBS, and Richie explained um, his experience with it, but and, and people probably know it involves some sort of brain surgery, but may not be familiar with the details. Could you please give our listeners a better idea of what DBS is exactly and how we think it works? Sure. Um, this is kind of a common question. It's also sometimes uh, a difficult question because the honest answer is that we don't have a um, very precise idea of the exact changes that are happening on a cellular level. But one of the things that you can think about in terms of brain function is, is that the movement coordination kind of functions as a circuit. And we know that in Parkinson's disease, this sort of circuit um, is not really functioning um, in a healthy way. And that's why we get symptoms like tremor or rigidity or bradykinesia or difficulties with walking and balance. And so within that circuit, the idea of deep brain stimulation is that you can insert an electrode into an area of that circuit, and you can deliver a very focused amount of energy or electricity into that circuit and try to help it work a little bit better to kind of reset it. And if you can reset the circuit to function perhaps in a more normal way, then we can reduce the symptoms of Parkinson's disease. And so you liken it, You could, hopefully uh, people on the call can see the um, picture up there, but you see the pulse generators, which are placed in the chest. This is kind of the control center of the, of the DBS where we can um, program it to deliver the energy in the way that we want it to be delivered. And the tips of those wires that you see the electrodes there are in the deep structures of the brain within those brain circuits that control movement. Um, so the deep brain stimulator functions in some ways like a pacemaker that people may be familiar with that are used for cardiac uh, and heart conditions, um, the difference being that the tip of the wire is in the brain and um, we control it uh, through that uh, battery that's, that's in the chest. So that's kind of a, a broad um, sort of overview of, of kind of how, um, how the stimulator itself works. Right. Thank you. Um, Dr. Fishman, I've heard that there's different areas of the um, brain that are stimulated depending on the patient. Could you tell us a little bit about that? Sure. And again, surgery, just to put this in a little bit of historical perspective, surgery for Parkinson's and related conditions uh, predated DBS by probably about 30 years. Uh, right. And uh, and. That's how we learned about those centers. There's one center mm -hmm. in the thalamus, uh, the ventral intermediate nucleus of thalamus usually goes by, a lot of these things go by their initials, VIM. And that is pr the preferred center when the target is a severe tremor. And that's true for not only Parkinson's-related tremors, but non-Parkinson's-related tremors such as essential tremor. The most common uh, center, uh, which is really uh, uh, the commonest center for deep brain stimulation, is one that goes by the initials STN, or subthalamic nucleus, and that is 
again, for all three of the major symptoms of Parkinson's, people who have dose fluctuations, they may have rigidity, slowness, tremor, or all combinations of the above. They respond to levodopa, uh, but yet they have this erratic, uh, fluctuating response to levodopa. And that's the commonest of all of, of the target. The third target, uh, which Richie was talking about, uh, and probably the one when patients, usually somewhat younger patients, who develop relatively early in their course these involuntary movements uh, that are from years of levodopa, uh, called levodopa-induced dyskinesias, involuntary movements, and in particular, uh, the center that's called the GPI, or globus pallidus interna, uh, that center works for all of the Parkinson's symptoms, but it's particularly good for uh, these abnormal movements. Sometimes patients will have these periods of painful abnormal stiffness called dystonia, an abnormal posture, and that's the preferred, uh, for that constellation of symptoms, GPI is the preferred location. And that's actually true for all forms of surgery, whether they're DBS or not. Okay, got it. And, and Richie, you said you had GPI with, is, is what's targeted with your DBS. Is that right? Yes, I did. I think that dyskinesia was the most overt um, symptom that was being addressed for, for in my case. Fluctuations right. were also strong, too. And can you give us an idea, now that we know kind of what the surgery is about, what was the experience like logistically for you in terms of how, how did it all come about and, and what was the experience like being in there? Well, logistically, it was, as I like to say, it's fun a surgery as you can imagine because you wake up in the middle of it and they program you while you're awake, which means mm. they, 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 test, they test the levels of the DBS um, connecting connections while you're awake so you can do um, like vocal patterns and they can test how much they can give, which is enough voltage to provide the, um, the treatment, but not too much so you aren't um, too tongue-tied. Um, so it's it, it was very interesting. There, there's some there's some interesting um, videos on the on the on the web of people who have played guitar while they were doing their um, programming mid surgery. I mean, wow. I, I I'm not I'm not very um, se sensitive to to someone having their instruments in my brain, so it didn't bother me to be awake. Some people that might be a deterrent, mm -hmm. but if, part of the, it, I mean, fine. so part of the whole calculation of having a surgery is the experience of the surgery as well, I think. Right. And um, Dr. Chad, can it, if someone is sort of queasy about being awake for the procedure, can it be done while someone's asleep under anesthetic? Actually, yes, uh, it can. There's actually several ways that uh, the procedure itself can be done. Um, the part that 
uh, Richie was referring to is sort of the most traditional method, which um, allows, you know, so the patient being awake allows for us to listen to the electrical signals of the brain um, as we're passing through various structures to make sure that we're actually targeting the spot that we intended to target. And then the testing itself allows for us to measure to make sure that both symptoms can get better and the patient doesn't experience side effects that would make it hard for them to use that um, stimulator once uh, all is said and done. So the um, other ways that the procedure can be done, some centers are actually doing this uh, using image guidance alone. And so rather than listening to those electrical recordings, they can use um, imaging software to very precisely target the structure, and, and when it's done under that procedure or under that technique, uh, patients can actually be fully asleep. Um, so there are different ways that this can be done to make the procedure more comfortable for patients. And um, Dr. Fishman, maybe you could tell us a little bit about what happens after the DPS is implanted. Um, what's the sort of course of, of recovery? Well, recovery is 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 fairly quick. Uh, as far as since uh, as brain surgery goes, it's a we're talking about the insertion of a wire into brain, uh, and usually patients uh, stay overnight and they're stable by the next day, and usually they go home, they very well may not have much benefit because at this point. Uh, all the experience of turning it on has been with an external device. They usually come back uh, after they've recovered, usually within the first, within a week or so, and that's an a outpatient procedure. That's really putting in the pulse generator, which is very similar to a pacemaker. And from a surgical point of view, it's just like coming in for, uh, as with millions of Americans have had, of having a pacemaker implanted. That's done under general anesthesia. Mm -hmm. That's a same-day procedure. And the entire system uh, is connected. Uh, and usually about a few days to a week after that, usually within a couple weeks of the initial brain procedure, they come back for programming. We tend to allow the brain to heal uh, uh, before programming uh, just because the uh, results of, of uh, the stimulation are more consistent after Basically, the brain is kind of tacked down and stuck to that electrode. So again, three, the, the first, the surgical procedure, the brain seizure, uh, where you stay overnight, you come back to same-day surgery to have the whole thing hooked up, and then you come back as an outpatient to have it really turned on in that programming session mm -hmm. where usually at least an hour that it takes to find the exact uh, pattern of stimulation that's going to be best for that patient. Is there an average amount of time? I have a couple of questions from people listening about timing. Um, how, how, what, what course of time should they expect to have to, you know, have it fine-tuned in order for it to work? Is there an average time that is, is appropriate? So I usually, uh, this is uh, Juhi, I usually tell patients yeah. that it takes about um, six months uh, to do that process of fine-tuning the stimulation. And, and the reason for that is that it uh, takes a little bit of stimulation adjustment and then a little bit of medication adjustment. Um, so we have mm -hmm. to kind of try to find the balance between both of those aspects now. And for some people, that may take up to six months. For some individuals, it may occur in a shorter period. It all depends on... 
Um, well, it depends on a number of different factors, really. But I, you know, kind of the average time that I tell them is, is to give me six months to, to kind of sort that out. Yeah. In my case, anecdotally, I, I was about six months for me to get the okay. levels working in a functional manner. But then to dovetail a little bit from that, it's, it, it, it becomes a part of the overall treatment protocol now. So I right. don't have to go in frequently. I've kept my levels on the same level for a couple of years now, but it's always part of the discussion that I have with my doctor when I see him. Right. With my doctors when I see them. So, um, and, and it's one, one of the at, positive aspects of the surgery, post-surgery versus pre-surgery is the nature of the interaction with the, do- with the doctors. The doctors who right. generally have to tell sort of bad stories about progression and about how it's, it gets worse and, it, and it's hard to deal with um, to the same doctors the next week are looking at you like you're a positive story. Like you, can, right. you, you, can, uh, you, you, get, you get to improve dramatically with Parkinson's, even if you're not stopping the overall disease underneath it. Right, to vary so drastically sometimes, I guess. But this is sort of after your second treatment or second surgery, and I have a couple of questions. Maybe, Dr. Fishman, you could take this one, or, or Dr. Shahid. Um, that, you know, what is the risks associated with um, having DBS surgery? I mean, all surgical procedures or treatment of any sort have risks. And what are some of the risks with DBS other than infection? Well, the, the basic risks are the same for all surgical procedures. The risk of all surgery uh, uh, are bleeding and infection. And mm-hmm. uh, all teams do their best to control that because, frankly, the most serious place you can have either bleeding or infection is within brain. Uh, so, uh, again, the use of antibiotics, very you know, sterile procedures are really at the core of making to try to ensure that there's no infection. And because not only is DBS, uh, again, the risk of infection within brain, but it's what's usually referred to as a, a foreign body. Anything that's implanted uh, into the body and particularly into brain, it's very difficult for the immune system to clear that infection. And so when a serious infection occurs, uh, it may not be able to be controlled with antibiotics in that situation, whether it's, a, it's an implanted hip or a DBS system, it has to be taken out and replaced. Mm-hmm. Uh, the other most serious, most feared is is inf- is bleeding. Now, mm-hmm. bleeding does occur, you know, in two or three percent of, of patients, and, but most of those bleedings are small, and they don't have any clinical symptoms. But bleeding that is substantial can cause stroke-like symptoms. It can cause weakness, interfere with language. Seizures can occur. So, again, you're probing physically into brain. And, again, all teams uh, make sure that patients are are well-informed and do everything they can in control of bleeding, uh, imaging to try to identify any uh, significant blood vessels so that the path of the DBS doesn't hit a blood vessel. Uh, patients have to be off aspirin, off anticoagulants for a time mm-hmm. to reduce the risk of bleeding. Blood pressure has to be well-controlled before the DBS mm-hmm. process. Uh, so, again, uh, again uh, every surgical procedure, every surgical consent form says bleeding and infection, and every DBS right. team uh, does their best to minimize those within brain. Right. 
And how quickly did that happen for you, Richie? How quickly after your first surgery? Um, it was it was in November. I had the surgery at the end of November, and then by New Year's Eve, I said New Year's Eve, 2011, getting it all removed. I okay. I saw the doctor, and the doctor said the doctor came over to my house actually because I sent him a picture of the infection, and he then said we're going to the hospital right now. So. It was a, it was an urgent situation, but I was, I was I was perfectly I had no other symptoms except for the actually just the physical symptoms of the infection. Right. So those are sort of more serious risks, Doctor Shahid. What is the likelihood of side effects? Um, we alluded to um, potential worsening of, of cognitive issues if they exist pre pre surgery, but are there other side effects that people have to be concerned about? Yeah, I think the um, the ones that you guys were just talking about are the surgical side effects, and um, I guess there's a different combination of symptoms that can occur as a result of the programming. Um, and so programming um, the DBS device, as Dr. Fishman was talking about, uh, there's different places in the brain that you can stimulate. Um, and because those are different anatomic regions and because the areas that are kind of close to those are different, there are some Sometimes different side effects that are going to, can occur with the different locations of stimulation that people get. Some of the most common ones, though, are things like tightening sensations of a body part. So um, when we're doing the deep brain stimulator, um, usually for, for the most most commonly, we would do uh, stimulation on both sides of the brain, but it's the right brain electrode that controls the left body and then vice versa. So mm -hmm. if somebody's um, electrode was being programmed, then on one half of the body, if they were experiencing side effects of, of tightening sensations or tingling sensations, um, sometimes there's face pulling. Uh, these are things that indicate to us that we need to change the way that the stimulation is, is being delivered in order to um, continue to allow the patient to get the clinical benefit without some of those side effects. Other things that uh, people may experience are changes in speech. Uh, sometimes the adjustments may um, have a negative consequence on the walking or the balance. Um, and so these are all things that need to be assessed both at the time that the programming is being done, uh, but then also when the patient comes back for their next uh, follow-up visit. Now, the good thing about deep brain stimulation is that if one of these side effects is experienced, then we usually can find a way to reprogram it to minimize or even eliminate that particular problem. And that's really one of the great advantages of having a, a stimulator device as opposed to uh, some of the other uh, earlier surgeries that Dr. Fishman was talking about where those side effects might not be reversible. And how long does this work for? How long does DBS therapy remain effective? So when we yeah, when we do the surgery, again, we're commonly, as was mentioned, trying to address things like the fluctuations and the dyskinesias or perhaps the, the tremor. And so uh, the studies indicate that those symptoms of Parkinson's disease can be continued uh, to be controlled for a number of years. And, and some of the studies have now shown up to 10, uh, sometimes even uh, longer um, benefits uh, in those 
initial symptoms that were being uh, addressed. So the tremor, the rigidity, the um, the slowness of the movements, the, all of those kind of cardinal Parkinson's features, along with the fluctuations and dyskinesias. So those things can, you know, remain effective over sort of a number of years. Um, the things that maybe are less likely to be controlled with the stimulator are things like uh, speech issues or cognitive issues or swallowing problems and some balance issues. And those are um, the parts of this that maybe are not as easily addressed with stimulation and are likely to continue to progress despite the fact that we make uh, continued adjustments to the stimulator. And Richie, have you found that to be the case in your situation, that there are some things? Yes, that the, I mean, I'm sorry, go ahead. Finish. No, go ahead. The, the moral of the story, I think, is that is sort of the beginning of the conversation. I still have Parkinson's. I need to address the issues that arise with Parkinson's, even if I'm feeling really good physically. So it's um, it's it's been an issue with um, treatment for my voice, for for some balance issues, and for lifestyle. Just, just being able to rem remember that you don't you don't get a pass to prevent you from eating right, sleeping right, stressing less, and exercising daily. Right, um, right. Be, be, you, you can sort of think that you can get away with it, but you can't. So right. it's a, and, and in my, my the, I had an instance of having to get reprogrammed because I was too stiff on one side. And mm -hmm. um, the amazing thing is it, it is immediate. It's not, it's not like you work for six months, then, then the doctor is able to, just make an adjustment and you right. walk out feeling right. much better. So it's yeah, that's amazing. Pretty um, interesting. Yeah, it must be a very interesting experience, I would imagine. Maybe we can go on and talk about focused ultrasound. And Dr. Fishman, you had um, mentioned that, um, about how surgical procedures um, or what we call blade of surgery or disruption or lesion of the brain tissue has been around for a while. Um, and focused ultrasound is a little different, I guess, in that it doesn't require a scalpel. I mean, scalpels are replaced with sound waves, um, which I guess disrupt brain circuits that are responsible for things like tremors. Is that a fair description? And I know you've done such extensive research on the procedure. Could you elaborate further about what this is and how it works? Yeah, it, again, uh, focused ultrasound sometimes has been described as in, in Parkinson's surgery is both a step forward and a step backward at the same time. So it's a way of doing old-fashioned lesional surgery. Uh, again, where uh, you destroy a specific brain area as opposed to implant an electrode and, and essentially, in, in most cases, inhibit uh, the abnormal signals. Uh, but the advance is that there's no physical probe. It's done uh, by... And, and similar to the way uh, uh, radiation has been used to destroy tumors, uh, it's done by an array of sound waves, in this case over a thousand, that target under the MRI uh, a brain area. And we're really talking about, which is what's needed for any form of, of this type of brain surgery, millimeter type accuracy uh, mm. and destroying it because the big difference between it and uh, and DBS is 
this is not a modifiable procedure. This is what happens on the table, uh, in this case in the MRI, is what happens for better or for worse. Uh, you don't have the opportunity, like with, uh, with DBS, of modifying it by changing the stimulation parameters. And, you know, as Dr. Shahid mentioned, if you have problems such as speech difficulty uh, with it, you can change the way the stimulation is applied and, and, and change it. Uh, if you, you want to go this programming process of getting the best clinical outcome. Uh, so there is no uh, no implantable device here. Uh, it's a, you know, for better or worse, there's no programming, uh, there's no physical probe. And so uh, it's the same, again, same goal uh, as DBS, to approach a target. Uh, and in this case, uh, and again, like DBS, the patient is treated uh, awake, uh, off their medications, uh, so that their symptoms are as florid as possible. And just mm -hmm. like DBS, just like Richie's experience, you're going to see uh, improvement on the table. And the patient is monitored very carefully because as we gradually destroy that brain target, uh, first with lower levels of energy, uh, we want to make sure that no uh, side effects from spread of, in this case, uh, heat. When all that sound energy converges on the target, we're really destroying it by coagulating it. And not only does the MRI look at brain location, but the MRI can actually measure, as we're doing it, brain temperature. So if we're in centigrade, if normal is 37, uh, and we heat a spot of brain up until, you know, 47, uh, just like if you had, God forbid, that kind of a fever, your brain wouldn't be functioning very well. Mm -hmm. What we'll do is we'll interfere with function of that brain location. We'll sh sh know that the spread of the heat is at the target. The patient will, again, periodically go in and out of the MRI. And my role as a neurologist is the exact same as my role when I, we do DBS, is uh, are good things happening? meaning are the patient's symptoms going away as we gradually do this? And mm -hmm. if there's the beginnings of anything bad happening, and in this, you know, if it's depending on location, is there numbness of the hand? Is there right. interference with vision? Is there interference with speech? Is there weakness mm -hmm. to say, oh, I think we're, we're spreading a little off target. We need to adjust the target. And one of the things that's, uh, again, similarities and differences, that goes on in DBS as well. And DBS, it's fairly easy to move that probe up and down. You have a manipulator that's on a drive, and you just turn the knob, and it moves up and down a few millimeters. But if you're not happy with that path, you literally have to uh, make another pass. You have to pull the probe out, move it over a little, and there's usually a great deal of discussion about whether or not you want to go left, right, forward, or back for that second pass to, to, you know, to make sure you hit the target on the second pass. With focused ultrasound, uh, our adjustments in location are invisible to the patient. They're done by right. uh, the operator, Dr. Eisenberg, who's our chair of neurosurgery. And again, it's our DBS team. Dr. Eisenberg has done all of our, our DBS. He's the, the pilot on all of our focused ultrasound. But again, it's done in a control room, and we can move 
forward, backwards, left or right, uh, with a turn of a knob, meaning by changing the target of the array. Because again, uh, once we're done, we're done for better or worse. And who is eligible for this treatment? Is it the same things you look at when you look at a patient being eligible for DBS or which types of patient would benefit most from this treatment? Well, again, it, it's even a little more limited. It's significantly more limited because right now, uh, and one of the reasons that DBS was invented is that serious complications occurred in the old days when we attempted to treat two sides of the brain. Uh, right. And particularly, you know, uh, what Dr. Shahid mentioned uh, before, left brain is controlling right arm and right leg, right brain is controlling left arm and left leg. But the two brain sides share for those muscles in the middle. And the muscles in the middle are involved in speech, swallowing, balance. And in the old days, when we did both sides, some patients got serious complications. So right okay. now, we're just beginning, all of the patients who have been currently treated, uh, virtually all of them have only had brain lesions on one side. And so when it comes okay. to Parkinson's, we've really targeted patients where their, their disease is very one-sided. Uh, we're Again, about just about from a safety point of view to try to approach the second side, but it hasn't been done yet. That's very interesting, actually, because oftentimes it does proceed to the other, progress to the other side, but I guess you do the more dominant or effective side. Yeah, and like I said, the real, one of the real breakthroughs of DBS was that ability to do both sides. And if those right. middle of the brain, middle of the, bot, middle of the body side effects like speech interference occur, occurred, you can usually get around them with programming. And because there's no probe being inserted, is infection bleeding less likely or reduced with focused ultrasound? They're dramatically less likely. Uh, okay. There has been one small bleed in over a thousand FUS cases that had no consequence. It was actually one of my patients. And the only infections that have occurred have actually been some minor skin infections where, where the frame is placed. There have been no brain infections. And Dr. Shedd, could you tell us a little bit more about the DBS registry you're involved with? Sure. The um, project that we're currently working on, we've called it RADPD. This is the Registry for the Advancement of Deep Brain Stimulation and Parkinson's Disease. And so a group of us have been interested in this question of why patients who are otherwise seemingly eligible and, and good candidates, as we've talked about today, um, may have differences in their outcomes. And despite our best efforts at looking at things like their levodopa response and looking at their neuropsychology and, and choosing patients appropriately, there are still uh, differences in the, in the ways that, um, you know, or the outcomes that, that people will have. And so one of the main goals of this registry is to really, in a very systematic way, follow a group of patients who have undergone deep brain stimulation surgery and measure the same things in the same patients each time for, for up to a period of five years. And by looking mm -hmm. at that data very systematically, we can then start looking at treatment patterns. We can look at response patterns. We can start to identify maybe some of the best practices of deep brain stimulation. I think one of the things that um, we haven't had a chance to talk about yet is even though we all sort of in general sense approach 
patients the same way. There's still differences and preferences that certain centers might have compared to others, and really um, we don't have a great way of understanding which are the actual best ways to kind of do it. So whether that's from a surgical standpoint or whether that's from a programming standpoint or whether that's from a medication management standpoint, um, those best practices are actually not clearly defined. We have a general sense of how we need to do it, but what, how, how can we really kind of understand those procedures um, and outcomes better so that we can make sure that all of our patients have the best chance for the best outcomes? And that's really kind of the, the purpose behind this registry is to collect uh, all of this data systematically so we can start answering those questions. Very interesting. Dr. Shahed, Dr. Um, I have one, one question for Dr. Shahed. Who is who's eligible for the, for the registry? Is it people who are just yeah, getting surgery or someone that may be eligible? Yeah, no, that's a great question. So we have a group of uh, 20 sites that we've identified that we will be working with on this registry for the time being. Our goal is to expand that in the future, but for right now, we're starting with 20. Um, and we're looking at any patients who are coming to those sites for evaluation for deep brain stimulation. So uh, understandably, some of those patients may be evaluated and don't get surgery, and some of those patients may be evaluated and do go on to get surgery. Um, and so we're really trying to look at the time that they are even considering the procedure. So before the surgery, um, when those evaluations are occurring, uh, that on-off evaluation that we talked about, that would be the time that we would be approaching these patients to participate. But any patient at that time who was doing it would be eligible. Okay. Um, another thing that's listed on this slide is about um, DBS stimulator technology. Are there what are the new developments when it comes to DBS stimulator technology, Dr. Shahin? There are actually this is a very exciting time in um, the world of deep brain stimulation. So um, what we have now are different companies that are manufacturing different devices that have different capabilities. Um, one of the most exciting advances that has recently become available in the last couple of years is a different electrode design. So the part mm -hmm. of the DBS that's actually in the brain, um, mm -hmm. the way that it is um, kind of structured is that there's there traditionally has been that there's four locations on that contact and all of the, you know, the, the whole point of the procedure is to be able to get the best, you know, get, get a contact, um, one of those four contacts within the structure that we're trying to uh, stimulate. And then the next step is trying to stimulate in a way that works for the patient without causing side effects. So now one of the new advances has been the development of a new electrode that allows us to steer the current in different directions. Mm -hmm. And we have more than just those four options. Um, in terms of finding the best settings for, for that individual patient. So that has been, um, uh, you know, a really exciting uh, advance, and we're um, looking actively to see, you know, how exactly to use that and, and how, to, um, how that will impact uh, the ultimate outcome for patients with Parkinson's. Um, another um, it, uh, advancement that's kind of in the works and is hopefully kind of on the horizon is, is a um, device that can actually sense the brain activity and use those signals to deliver the stimulation more intelligently. Um, one of the reasons that we think that people are more likely to have some of these uh, stimulation-related complications is because the stimulator is on all the time. It's on 24-7. 
And if there's a way that we can allow the brain to receive the stimulation only when either certain symptoms are present or when there are certain characteristics of those, um, that brain activity, then we might be able to, A, be more efficient about the stimulation and use less battery, and B, um, maybe reduce the, the, the side effects that people are having. That's very interesting. I mean, Dr. Fishman, of course, this can't be done in the field of focused ultrasound, where it's more of an ablation surgery. But are there other? Is there anything new in the field of focused ultrasound as new as it is itself? And are there other applications for this technology that you're looking well, at? Well, the applications. It's really focused ultrasound is kind of following the path of DBS. So DBS identifies targets. And focus ultrasound is starting to attack a lot of those targets. There's been worldwide focused ultrasound for patients with obsessive compulsive disorder, severe depression. Our own center is looking at patients with refractory pain. For Parkinson's mm-hmm. disease, as I said, uh, only last November was uh was focused ultrasound approved for any form of Parkinson's, and those are patients who have severe tremor, again, in the thalamic target. We're looking at the dyskinetic target, and a group in in Spain, uh, Dr. Biza, and some very bold neurologists, neurosurgeons, and patients are looking at the subthalamic nucleus because that is a very powerful nucleus in the sense that if you over-treat it, you may release very wild abnormal movements. So far, that hasn't right. occurred, but that's been the one that uh, – that's why the commonest DBS location is just being approached, uh, you know, at this point. So those are things kind of following the DBS path and trying to see can we reproduce some of that. One of the things we're looking at very intensively is I think was mentioned that some patients after DBS deteriorate cognitively, and especially Mm -hmm. if they have some cognitive issues to begin with. And it's not really known why. And the question is, are they deteriorating cognitively because of the effects of the DBS at the target, or are they deteriorating because of the path that that physical Mm -hmm. probe takes going through brain? We now have a pathless technology where all of the damage we're doing is at target, and that's why we're following all of our patients very closely with with neuropsychological testing uh, to see if we can resolve that issue, to minimize that. And the other, which is when we talk about uh, focused ultrasound now, we're talking about very high intensities of ultrasound to the point where about 10% of patients, we just can't get enough energy through the skull to make that brain lesion. But with lower amounts of energy, one can do other things. And the most uh, significant other thing that focused ultrasound can do, which has huge potential for Parkinson's disease, is mm-hmm. can open up the so-called blood-brain barrier. In general, right. uh, a lot of uh, therapeutics, particularly gene therapy or growth factors, uh, right. they won't uh, get into brain from blood. Uh, and what focused ultrasound can do, and there have been several uh, very reputable groups that have done this in animals, they can use focus ultrasound to vibrate open in a region, the blood-brain barrier, then they inject their gene therapy or their growth factor, and they get uh, results that are normally gotten by physically injecting that into brain. Uh, 
Uh, The first groups of patients have already undergone this procedure in in Alzheimer's disease, where the thought Mm -hmm. is that this will accelerate that. uh, And there are plans uh, in the not distant future uh, to look at certain forms of therapy to see if one can look at patients with Parkinson's disease and give what the goal of of things, what are usually referred to as disease-modifying therapies, some form of therapy that can make the nerve cells function better, keep them from uh, eventually dying. And that's, like I said, that's that's on the horizon with focused ultrasound. Yeah, that has huge potential for sure. So um, we're we're coming towards the end of our time, but um, and I've tried to weave answers or questions into the conversation that we've had that people have been submitting. But one of the questions that we haven't touched on, and I don't know if you want to take it, Dr. Fishman or Dr. Shaheed, is we're getting a few questions on the use of both. Can someone have DBS and then focused ultrasound or vice versa? Well, I guess I'll take that because I know a little bit. So first I'll say there's very little experience with that. Okay. There have been, and as I mentioned, Focused ultrasound is a one-shot deal. Well, there have been patients, like with all these procedures, who have failed. Uh, So, again, a failure with focused ultrasound does not prevent the patient from now having successful DBS. And I know there have been a couple patients where that's actually been published. So, again, uh, and and that's to be expected because in the days when DBS first came uh, in, there were a lot of patients who had uh, lesional surgery and their symptoms came back or they got worse and many of those patients either had the same or different locations with DBS and got benefit. So benefit with DBS mm-hmm. after lesion, uh, there's a lot of evidence that says that could work. But on the other hand, uh, there's only some animal safety data. The question is, can one do focused ultrasound with a DBS in place? And the answer is that is a much dicier procedure. Uh, I I don't know. I think there have been a couple patients who, even if it's taken out, it's uh, changed the whole way sound waves interact with the brain. But again, there's some animal work that says, at least on the second side, uh, you might be able to do it. But right now, that's... somewhat speculative and potentially dangerous. The question is, would the focused ultrasound heat up the probe or dislodge it or move it? One thing that you Mm -hmm. don't want to happen. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, But thank you so much for that information. I know people were wondering about that aspect. Um, But before we go, I'd like to give Richie, I'd like to give you a moment to answer this final question. How has DBS impacted your life, would you say? It's, on the whole, it's impacted very positively. I was in a in a condition where I was not working anymore, not able to live my life the way I wanted to. I was not married. I was I had my teenage kids, but they were. It was hard for me to interact with them in a, in a very positive way, except for conversations and emotionally. But um, the the DBS. The profound effect of it when it was turned on for me was that I could resume my resume my life and live a life that was just exceeded all of my pre Parkinson's dreams. I have a great relationship with my big kids. I've got two six year old identical twin girls, and um, life has really been great. 
uh, without its challenges with the non-motor uh, aspect of the right. disease. But it's been a, it's been a really great life, as opposed to being on total disability and unable to function really before the surgery. On that note, I'd like to thank everyone kindly for joining us today. I hope you feel that your time was well spent and that you found the discussion informative and valuable. And thank you, Richie and Dr. Shahid and Fishman for, for sharing your expertise. We're um, very much sure. appreciated. And remember, those of us with Parkinson's have no choice in our diagnoses, but how we face the challenges is really ours to determine. So empower yourself by educating yourself as much as you can about this disease. And until next time, be well and live your best life. Thank you. This is Michael J. Fox. Thanks for listening to this podcast. Learn more about the Michael J. Fox Foundation's work and how you can help speed a cure at michaeljfox.org.